1: Welcome to the Moms of Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend Melissa. Hi Melissa. Hi Mandy, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like every week you've had you've had several very good weeks, and I believed all of them. This one felt a little less believable. But I believe you, but not yeah, as yeah. not as enthusiastic.
1: <laughs> We're hanging in there. Like a lot of families, we have just recently started our school at home. Adventure for this year. So <laughs> that's always fun. You know, we've done homeschooling for a while, but then I did have my kids in part time school last year and we kind of got used to that. And so now we're back full time homeschool. And it's almost like I just forgot how that's even done. I have no clue how I made it through the years that I did it because this year just seems so hard. But we're, we're doing it just like <laughs> everyone else. We are just doing it and we're getting by day by day. So it's been fine. It's been a fine week, but it's gone by very fast. And We're just kind of trying to figure out a schedule around here. Yeah, I get that for sure. So we'll get right into the episode this week. Today's story is about a woman who nearly got away with murder until she committed a second murder just three months later, and a twisted story emerged about how a wealthy, well-known mother and son were killed at the hands of someone they knew very well. The story takes place kind of in multiple locations, but... We're going to do Google this city out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, because that's where a lot of the people in the story are from, and you'll kind of see what we mean as we get into this story. So, Melissa, without further ado, wow. Google this city <laughs> on Fort Lauderdale. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was a journey, and get ready for another less pleasant journey. Here we go. So Fort Lauderdale is located in southeast Florida, and as of the 2019 census has a population of around 182,000 residents. Fort Lauderdale is known as the yachting capital of the world, in part because of the Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show, as well as the amazing weather it has year round, making it the perfect place to both dock a yacht or to set sail. And Mandy, I'm not sure if you knew this, but I am a bit of a yachty. Um, <laughs> you know this about <laughs> wait, me. Isn't,
1: it's like a, wait, hold on a minute.
0: A yachty? Yeah, I'm a yachty. I'm a total yachty. I've watched over seven <laughs> years of Below Deck and Below Deck Med. The people on that show are actual yachtis. Like they call themselves yachty. If you work on a yacht, you can right, call. Great, but your... they're like
1: the trolls under the yacht.
0: Wait, the trolls <laughs> under the yacht? Isn't that like they stay under the people that work uh... under the deck, below the deck, yeah. below deck? <laughs> I don't know that they refer to themselves as trolls. <laughs> I refer to them as the people that make my life so happy every Monday night whenever their shows come on. Um, But, yeah, they're the people that work on yachts. They are the human being people that work on yachts and not the trolls. So... So anyway, all I really know, actually, you took this in a new direction and I just love it. But all I really (laughs) know about yachts is there's a starboard, a port and a stern and to always make sure Captain Lee gets his cereal. And that is just a joke for about three people that are out there Um, and not any trolls. (laughs) (laughs) So some of the biggest movies of all time have been filmed in Fort Lauderdale. And honestly, there was such an extensive list I just picked and chose. Which I normally do with everything, anyway. But there are films like Happy Gilmore, Cape Fear, Adaptation. There's something about Mary, and of course, Academy Award snub, but blockbuster hit from Justin to Kelly. Uh, Lastly, that was a good joke. I would like a laugh for that. You know, from Justin to Kelly.
1: I think it's about
0: the American Idol. Yes, thank you so much. (laughs) I knew this week was going to be rough for me, and that just really solidified it. (laughs) Lastly. my idea this week was if I go really low with it, then next week people will be like, wow, this is so great because this week would be so poor. And that's kind of how (laughs) I'm finishing this up. So lastly, Fort Lauderdale is the home of the original spring break. Back in the 60s and even somewhat before, people would come from all over to enjoy the beautiful beaches of Fort Lauderdale. 60-plus years later, spring breaks are a huge part of the high school and college experience, although Fort Lauderdale is less of a hot spot for spring break now and more of a location for icy hot thanks to the snowbirds. Mic drop, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) I never know how to get myself out of it, and it's never great. Just continue. It's fun. Oh. The
1: story this week begins in the early morning hours of July 12, 2009, when police were alerted to a brutal crime scene in the penthouse suite at the Hilton Hotel in Rybrook, New York. A woman named Narcy Novak had dialed 911 after she allegedly left her hotel room that she'd been staying in with her husband, only to return and find him dead less than an hour later. First responders described the scene as horrific. The victim, Benji Novak, had been brutally attacked as he lay in bed. When they found him, he was on the floor of the hotel room with duct tape tightly wrapped around his arms and legs and over his mouth. What police immediately noticed and found shocking was that both of Benji's eyes had been removed. He'd been beaten to death with dumbbells, which resulted in 20 cracked ribs, which is really significant because most people have 24 ribs, just 12 on each side. So nearly all of his ribs were broken. And it appeared that Benji had been attacked while he was asleep and that there was more than one killer involved. But the mystery began when no signs of forced entry into the hotel room were found. Police quickly learned that their victim had quite an interesting background. Benji's parents were responsible for the creation of the famous Fountain Blue Hotel, which used to be one of the hottest spots in Miami Beach back in the 1960s. So as a side note here, this hotel is still there and it is very, very luxurious. They offer regular guest rooms and full-size suites with one or two bedrooms. And they have this one suite that they have on the ocean front, and it features a large furnished balcony and breathtaking views from the historical Chateau Tower. And you have your own parlor and living room and it's super, super cheap. It's only $989 a night.
0: I'll be there this weekend. That's just the deal.
1: <laughs> right. So when you book this room, though, they give you a $100 nightly meal credit. So I'm that sorry, tells you how cheap the
0: dinners are. If you get $100 credit
1: every night, dinner must be super cheap.
0: Give me an $889 credit, and I might consider staying there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this hotel was actually built and run by Benji's parents, Bernice and Ben Novak. And calling the business a success would just be a huge understatement. Investigators wondered whether Benji's status
0: somehow made him a target for murder. Benji grew up with a very privileged life. He was born on January 19, 1956 in Manhattan, New York, and by that time, his parents, Ben Sr. and Bernice, already owned the Fountain Blue Hotel on Miami Beach. In fact, Benji's parents had already been together for quite some time before he came along. The two met in the late 1940s in New York. At that time, Bernice, who was in her mid to late 20s, was working as a fashion model for Salvador Dali and Coca-Cola, which are two very, very different things. (laughs) (laughs) So Ben Sr. was already in the hotel business when they met. He lived in Miami, but he made frequent trips to New York. When he met Bernice, he was actually already married to his first wife named Bella, and Bernice was not even remotely interested in having a relationship with this man and refused to date him or even entertain the idea since he was married. A year or so later, Ben Sr. showed back up saying that he was now divorced and wanted to know if Bernice would now date him. She agreed, and in 1951, the two were married. The following year, in 1952, Ben Sr. bought Harvey Firestone's mansion for $2.3 million, which is equivalent of around $22.4 million today. So Ben Sr. buys this house and he hires an architect to design what would end up becoming the largest hotel in Florida. Florida. The Fountain Blue Hotel was opened in 1954 on the oceanfront in the heart of Millionaire's Row. And this is really just what it sounds like. It's this stretch of waterfront property in Miami that has multi-million dollar mansions and luxury hotels just lining the whole way so millionaires row is not as popular now but they do still have the neighborhood of star island on biscayne bay and many modern day celebrities have had houses there including madonna rihanna lebron james and j-lo and i feel like i remember rosie o'donnell owning a home there i maybe she talked yeah. about it on her tv show why do I know that? Why is that such a specific memory? For I feel me? like there's been so many. I feel like Will Smith had a house there at
1: one point. Um, he was there's going like to Miami. A few that I can think of. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Maybe he, maybe it
0: was just a song, but I think
1: he actually <laughs> did have a house there. Um,
0: <laughs> I've got Rosie O'Donnell, and you have Will Smith, based on nothing. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of assumptions. <laughs> So this hotel was a huge success and it's described as being quote, one of the most historically and architecturally significant hotels on Miami beach end quote, and in the 1950s and the 1960s, it was the leading resort on Miami beach. The hotel is still symbolic of the whole essence of Miami beach, which is still really very glamorous and very high profile. So two years after the hotel was established, Ben Senior and Bernice welcomed Benji into the world. The Fountain Blue was so well-known that for 25 years, it didn't even have a sign out in front to identify it. It became a hotspot for very popular celebrities at the time, including Elvis, Lucille Ball, Judy Garland, and Frank Sinatra. Former President John F. Kennedy even visited the hotel. Because of the hotel's high-profile status, it was also used in even more hit movies like Goldfinger, Scarface, and The Bodyguard. Despite the lavish lifestyle that Benji and his parents were living, they weren't really happy with each other, and in 1968, Ben Sr. and Bernice divorced. Unfortunately, in 1977, Miami's beach economy was doing really poorly, and the city wasn't doing well financially. Ben Sr. was sadly forced to declare bankruptcy, and he lost ownership of the hotel.
1: While Benji was growing up, he lived in the penthouse suite at the Fountain Blue, and he described his upbringing as glamorous and said that he got to meet presidents, celebrities, and more. As a child, Benji was said to be kind of obnoxious, to put it really bluntly. People described him as, quote, a brat and said that he wanted people to fear him. He really was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and he had kind of a pompous attitude about his family's wealth and status from owning this very luxury hotel, he was bossy and impatient, and people even went so far as to say that he, quote, wasn't an easy guy to like. Even as a child, Benji had this level of control in the hotel, and he would fire hotel staff whenever he felt like it. Oh, Yeah, that's kind of crazy to think of, like, a little kid just telling a staff member that they're fired. Yeah. It just seems very interesting that that would be allowed. <laughs> right. According to Benji's aunt, he was also kind of a loner and never really got along well with others. She said that on Halloween, Benji would be taken around to trick-or-treat by a chauffeur and he wouldn't have any other kids hanging out with him or anything. He would just have his chauffeur drive him door-to-door so he could do trick-or-treating. But even so, Benji was spoiled and he lived in the lap of luxury all the way up until his father lost the Fountain Blue in 1977 when Benji was 21 years old. Benji was allegedly very disappointed with his father's failures, as he thought, And he was just distraught over the loss of this hotel business, which I mean, I get it. But like, I feel like the dad should have been more upset than the son. It's kind of a strange thing that the son is like so heartbroken. I mean, I feel I get feeling bad for your parents, but he was like on another level, like he was angry almost at his dad. It's like, that's your dad's livelihood. So, I mean, think about how he feels. You know what I'm saying? Like I just it's just very strange. But for as egotistical as Benji was, he was also an extremely ambitious young man. The following year, when he was 22, he started an enterprise of his own when he formed Novak Enterprises, which was a company that organized and oversaw conventions held by various businesses. This was a very successful venture for Benji. The company soared and made Benji a very wealthy man at a very young age, and that certainly did not help his superior attitude towards those around him. Many said that although he was very motivated and that he held people accountable, he also came across as arrogant and had a lot of enemies. In the mid-80s, Benji's father, who's Ben Sr., took a pretty serious health decline. Benji was even trying to have a judge find Ben Sr. mentally incompetent to handle his $1 million estate. He wanted to have a legal guardian appointed to take over the handling of his father's finances. A woman who was living with Ben Sr. at the time named Juana Rodriguez put the whole kibosh on the whole thing really by fighting back and alleging that Benji was actually the one with the problem and that it was him who was keeping Ben Sr. oversedated and was refusing to let him see his friends. She also alleged that Benji had improperly obtained a power of attorney. Nothing ever came of Benji's request to have his father's finances taken over by someone else because Ben Sr. sadly passed away of heart and lung failure in April of 1985 before anything could be done. At the time of his death, Ben Sr. no longer owned any hotels, and he really had very little money left, but most of what he had in assets did go to Benji. In addition to being rich and successful, Benji also had another side of himself that he kept a secret. He was into bondage and other fetishes, and he took a particular liking to sex workers and exotic dancers, and he frequented nude bars often, which is how he would eventually come to meet his future wife, Narsi. And we're going to get into what happens next in this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's Sponsors.
0: We are walking right into fall and we'll be doing our walking in our Rothy's. Rothy's are the most comfortable and cute shoes that I have ever owned. You know, those new shoes you buy and the first time you wear them, you're just a little bit nervous and maybe you throw a few band-aids in your purse just in case. Well, there's none of that with Rothy's because there is zero break-in period. So you can just take on your day, whatever it may hold. Don't just take our word for
1: it. Vogue has called Rothy's a personal obsession, and Health says they're the most comfortable shoes on earth, and that's because they are seamlessly knit with thread made from plastic water bottles, So not only are they made into beautiful and sustainable products, but they've kept 60 million single-use
0: plastic bottles out of landfills. And Rothy's are not only beautiful, but they have an ever-changing array of colors, prints, and patterns, so you can choose what works for you. They're always adding new and fun patterns to make a great statement with anything from your sweats to your dresses. I've had the sneakers in steel gray for two years now, and I still wear them all the time, which is not as gross as it sounds, I promise, because anytime they need a little refresh, I just throw them in the washer and they're as good as new. Not only do Rothy's have shoes, but they now offer handbags and I have my eye on the saddlebag because not only are their shoes machine washable, but so are their handbags, which is great because I currently have about an inch of some combination of fruit snacks and goldfish stuck in the bottom of my purse. And I am desperate for a purse. I can just throw into the wash and get back as good as new. Check out all the amazing shoes and bags
1: available right now at rothys.com moms. That's rothys.com R O T H Y S.com moms. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com/moms today. We are all true crime lovers here, and I think part of my interest in true crime is watching the puzzle pieces come together to tell a story. And that's part of why I love the puzzle game Best Fiends. Playing Best Fiends feels like uncovering new pieces to a puzzle that you get to be a part of. I also love that the levels don't take a ton of time, so I can play a quick round while I'm waiting for my coffee to brew in the mornings. Another perk of Best Fiends is that it doesn't require the internet to play, so you don't need to worry about Wi-Fi
0: access or going through your cell data. I'm on level 957 in Best Fiends, and I can't even explain what a nice brain break it is for me. Sure, it's a puzzle, but it's a fun puzzle and a way for me to escape for a few minutes from real life. I love strategizing from level to level, and even when I get stuck on a level for a few rounds, it's not frustrating. I just look at my options and maybe move some fiends around, and I've got it. I love being able to upgrade my fiends as I go along, making them even more effective, and I always make sure Napoleon is upgraded and ready to go into battle. Even though Best Fiends is an individual game, I love keeping the game going by sharing gifts with friends, but even more so when they share them with me. And it's not just Mandy and I that are playing. Best Fiends has over 100 million downloads, so go ahead and join us. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new
1: levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends.
0: And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about the history and lavish upbringing of Benji Novak and how he came to meet the woman that he would eventually marry. Narcisa Sierra Veliz Pacheco, and she went by Narci for short, was born on November 28, 1956 in Ecuador. She was married to a man named Angel Abad from 1975 through 1979 and gave birth to a daughter during that time named May. Following her divorce from Angel, Narcy and Baby May moved to America, and she was admitted for permanent residency in September of 1981. While Narcy lived in Ecuador, she worked as an exotic dancer from April of 1984 to August of 1989. When she got to the U.S., she took the same type of job at a bar in Hialeah, Florida. Despite their vastly different backgrounds, Benji and Narcy really hit it off, and within just a short period of time, Benji had proposed, and the two were married in August of 1961. Benji took Narcy on an amazing honeymoon to Hong Kong, Australia, and Fiji, but when they got back to the States and started living a normal married life, things weren't really the best. Benji had always been a typical bachelor type, and he enjoyed his lifestyle and frequenting nude bars and entertaining sex workers and other women. Benji was constantly unfaithful to Narcy from the moment their relationship began, and Narcy was really aware that Ben was cheating. The two never had any children together, but Narcy's daughter May was also in the picture. Both Narcy and May helped Benji run his convention planning business. Benji must have liked to keep it in the family because his mom Bernice also worked for Novak Enterprises as a secretary. This made things a little tense to say the least because Narcy and Bernice did not get along. Some who knew them said they hated each other and you could describe their relationship as strained. But it wasn't just her mother-in-law that Narcy had constant issues with. She actually hardly got along with her own daughter, May, and she sent her to live with different people all throughout her life. May considered Benji to be the only father she ever had. By this time, Benji's business had really taken off and was bringing in $50 million a year, but Benji had been rich for quite some time. When he first married Narcy, he had a prenup put in place so if they were to ever divorce, he would only pay her $65,000. But if he died and they were still married, Narcy would get his entire $10 million estate, so long as his mother Bernice was already dead as well. In the event that Narcy died before Benji, then May and her children would receive his estate. So like we said at first, Narcy and Benji did
1: not have a fairytale relationship. Before the morning that Benji was found dead in the couple's penthouse suite, there were numerous other strange scenarios that occurred between the two of them. They were very dysfunctional, and they had several strange altercations over the course of their marriage. In June of 2002, Narsi lured Benji to be handcuffed to a chair in their Fort Lauderdale home, and she had him believe that they were going to participate in some kind of sexual acts involving bondage, just like they always did. At some point, Benji got tired, and Narsi decided to punish him by tying him up with rope putting blinders on his eyes, hitting him in the mouth. And she made this reference to she was going to do what Lorena Bobbitt did. And then she warned him against resisting her. And then instead of having sex, Narcy left Benji tied up and handcuffed while she took his personal belongings and some of his papers along with thousands of dollars that he had stashed in a safe. And she had at least one man in the home to scare Benji into thinking that there were multiple men that were in the house with Narcy while he is of course tied up. So Whoa. she's robbing him. Like she has him tied up and she's got these other people there and they're just robbing. She's robbing her own husband. It's just definitely a bizarre circumstance. And
0: he knows she's the one robbing him. Like, that's so crazy to me right what are you going to do after this you can easily be identified <laughs> it makes no yeah, sense it doesn't
1: make any sense no so as soon as benji was able to free himself he called the police and said that somebody invaded his home and robbed him and he told them that his wife narcy was in on it and helped the robbers disable the couple's alarm acquaintances of the couple think that narcy did it to get back at benji for how he treated her and for all of the cheating that he had done over the course of their marriage No charges were filed against Narcy following this incident, and the couple stayed together. Another incident happened in 2008 when Benji saw an online ad for a sex worker and stripper named Rebecca Bliss. Rebecca was charging $300 an hour for her services, and Benji reached out and contacted her. Before long, they were actually engaged in a full-blown affair. Benji even moved Rebecca into a condo and started telling her that he was going to leave Narcy. When Narcy found out about the affair, she actually contacted Rebecca and offered her $10,000 to end the relationship with Benji. And she allegedly told Rebecca, quote, if she couldn't have him, no other woman was going to have him. As a way to get back at Benji, Narcy actually contacted the FBI and told them that Benji and Rebecca were, quote, involved in a sham marriage and immigration fraud ring, which. okay, that's a lot i guess like an immigration fraud ring that's so that seems so random for ben it's just a very random thing to say well and to
0: go all the way to the fbi and you know you gotta you gotta be transferred a few times to be able to get to somebody to still go along with this crazy story and you're still with this guy you know like you've already gone through so much this is the time you're gonna go to the fbi i don't really get it
1: right yeah it's it's odd And around the same time, while on a trip in Mexico, Narcy told Mexican custom authorities that she had no idea how her husband financed their lavish lifestyle, and it was almost as though she was insinuating that he came by his money illegally. So she's just like throwing her husband under the bus to officers, just like it's no big deal. Narcy also told Rebecca's apartment manager that Benji, who was paying for this apartment, died and would not be making further payments on the place, which... It's definitely a, a weird thing to tell anyone, you know, especially in that situation. It's just a
0: weird thing to say, like that he's dead and won't be paying anymore. Yeah, for sure. So in the spring of 2009, tragedy struck when Benji found his mom, 87-year-old Bernice, dead inside her home. Although there were some very strange clues left behind at the scene of her death, it was officially ruled an accident due to a fall. Benji and his Aunt Maxine, Bernice's sister, both refused to believe that she had died that way. There was actually blood in Bernice's car and a trail of blood drops throughout her house. Benji also noticed a glass of white wine on the table, but knew that his mom didn't drink white wine. For some reason, no DNA samples were taken and police never investigated the death at all. They didn't even interview neighbors to ask if they had seen anything suspicious, and the case was considered closed. When Bernice died, she had a $2 million estate, which went entirely to Benji. Part of the estate was a massive collection of Batman memorabilia, So in this 48 Hours episode that's on this case, they actually talk about uh, this Batman collection and said it was the second largest one in the country. So Benji's own estate grew by millions with the passing of his mom. Even though Benji believed that there was really more to the story of how his mom died, investigators disagreed with him, and so he had no choice but to move on without answers or explanations to the way the scene looked when he found her. Three months later, Benji's company was overseeing an Amway convention in Rybrook, New York, which is about 30 minutes away from Manhattan, and this was a pretty big convention with about a 1,000 people expected to attend, and Benji was going to be there himself as well. He booked the penthouse suite at the Hilton Hotel there, and Narsi decided to tag along for the trip. May also went to New York to help run some things at the convention. The night of July 11, 2009, was really a long one for Benji. He spent the whole night working at the convention and didn't make it to bed until around 6.30 the next morning. Records later showed that Benji answered a phone call from the hotel front desk at 6.54 a.m. The hotel worker was informing Benji that there was overcrowding for breakfast and that the hotel was trying to make it work. I was thinking about this, these convention, I would not want to run one of these kind of like big convention things, all the moving parts in this this would be super oh my gosh, stressful I know. and these are like such huge events and i can't imagine that so of course he's the one getting all these calls but even hearing like hey it's there's too many people for breakfast so we got to figure this out like it's 6 54 in the morning you haven't even slept that just seems like a lot of hard work this whole his whole job at this point nancy left her room to go figure out the seating problem in the dining room about 30 minutes later she returned to the room to find that benji had been brutally attacked As we mentioned earlier, the scene was gruesome. There was blood all over the hotel room, and it was clear that there were multiple people that were involved in this murder. But for some reason, Narcy kept asking a detective if Ben had died of a heart attack. The officer thought this was really strange because she was the one to call in the murder, so she had clearly seen that her husband was tied up and beaten to death and that he had not died of a heart attack or any other natural cause.
1: After police secured the scene, they began searching for evidence and clues as to what happened. Of course, their first avenue really to go down was with whatever records and surveillance videos they could get from the hotel itself. The first puzzling thing they noticed was that there were absolutely no signs of forced entry into this hotel room, which meant that whoever went into the room to murder Benji had either done so with the key card to the room or they had to have been let in by somebody that was already inside. And if you think about it, when you're in a hotel like that's the only way in so it's not like you have multiple entrances you have to check right. you know it's really just the door to your room if it, if that hasn't been you know tampered with in some way then how did somebody get in the room then so it definitely would be strange in this case to not see any signs right. that there was any break-in of any kind investigators noticed that there was expensive jewelry left out in the open in the room that hadn't been stolen which led them to believe that robbery was not a motive When they looked into the data from the card key reader, they learned that no cards had been swiped between the hours of 12 a.m. and 7.45 in the morning. The swipe at 7.45 a.m. was from Narcy's key, and that's the time when she allegedly realized that her husband was dead and called 911. Surveillance footage from the hotel showed Narcy downstairs in the dining room talking to workers at 7.17, so they were able to confirm that Narcy was out of the room around the time the murder took place. The following day, Narsi was officially interviewed. They talked to her for eight hours this first day, which that is a very, Whoa, very long yeah. interview, especially the day after your husband has been found dead in a hotel room. That would just be grueling. So she told them that it was around seven o'clock in the morning when she left the room to go check on the convention's breakfast and that when she left the room, Benji was still awake and talking on the phone while he was lying in bed. She told police that when she returned to the room an hour later, she found him dead on the floor next to the bed. In an attempt to provide some explanation for how this could have happened, Narsi said that she may have left the door open when she went down to check on breakfast. Over the course of the very long interview, Narsi told police several details about the relationship that she had with her husband, which she was really openly describing as pretty much just being a tumultuous relationship. Keep in mind, they did not ask this. And I feel like you hear this a lot in um, in these cases when they're interviewing people, like they always say, like, it looks shady when they start giving a lot of information that wasn't asked. You know, that's one of the ways that investigators can know that you're either like something's going on, because if you just start talking and giving all this information, but you do see that happen a lot with people that are being interviewed. I don't know if they get nervous, but they just start talking and spilling things that no one even asked them. But they get a lot of information I would
0: 100% do that just out of, I don't like there to be silent. So if a, an officer realized I was, you know, like tried to keep it quiet, I would just literally go through like my middle school experience, just everything that's ever happened to me in my life, just to keep it from being quiet. Right.
1: I can't deal with it. So yeah,
0: I get that. But yeah, it's, you do see that a lot. You're right. That where people just, you're like, why would you, why would you have even said that? Why would that ever right. come out of your mouth? Yeah. They didn't ask you. <laughs> Yeah.
1: So she told him about their lifestyle, including their bedroom preferences. And she said that from his teenage years onward, Benji was obsessed with cops, Batman, sex with amputees, child porn and sadomasochism. So this is all things that she's just volunteering to the police. So Narsi admitted that both of them like to, quote, play rough, but that she didn't want other people to view her husband as a pervert. She even told police that they used handcuffs and that it was common for Benji to tie her up for hours while he worked in another room, and she would also do the same thing to him. She would tie him up by his arms, legs, and ankles. According to Narsi, she knew that her husband had affairs, but she didn't believe that he was having one at the time that he was killed. Narcy alleged that she was devoted to Benji and loved him despite his bad temper and what she called unsavory sexual desires. And she said that she encouraged him at one point to seek counseling for porn addiction. So she's telling the police, I love my husband. Yes, we have problems. And, you know, this is what's going on. But she's insisting that their relationship was fine. She loved him and, of course, would never do anything to hurt him. That was her
0: story. Right. Right. In addition to divulging all this information, Narsi also alleged that she was assaulted by Benji in the past. On one occasion, she said that Benji hit her and broke her nose. And then when she went to see a plastic surgeon to have it all fixed, she woke up from the surgery with breast implants as well. Narsi claimed that she did not consent to the breast augmentation. That would be really
1: scary if it were true. (laughs) Yeah,
0: if it was true, that would be terrifying. But there's no flipping way that any doctor is going to do a surgery on you that you did not consent to there are so many pieces that go into that that there's just no way they're like you know what while we're in here give me some cc's let's see what we can do in here nobody's going to do that that's crazy they right lose i license. just don't i know exactly exactly i have a hard time believing that one myself for sure she described benji as a quote hard person a strong businessman and had a tendency to make people angry In quote she said he made enemies everywhere he went basically Investigators also asked Narsi to submit a polygraph test, which she agreed to do, but when the results came in, it showed that there were, quote, indications of deception when questioned pertaining to her knowledge of this homicide, end quote. But Narsi insisted that that was just not the case. She was adamant that she'd always been in love with her husband and she would never do anything to hurt him. After this interview was done, Narsi was allowed to go home for the night. Two days after the murder, Narsi was back in Fort Lauderdale at she and Benji's home. In an interesting twist, police in Fort Lauderdale were called to the residence that day after a fight broke out between Narcy and her daughter, May, who had been living in an unattached cottage on the property. May allegedly questioned Narcy about Benji's will. Everything had been left to Narcy, and May was really curious about that. The two women started slapping each other, and the fight ended when Narcy hit her daughter, May, with a crowbar. Insane. Yeah, I can't imagine. No. That's crazy. When police arrived, May was yelling things at Narcy and saying that, you know, she killed Benji, but no charges were filed that day and May ended up moving out of the cottage. At this point, police in New York that were working on the case knew that they needed to take their investigation to Florida to learn more about Benji and Narcy's life. And we're going to get into what happens next after one last break to hear work from this week's sponsors.
1: Connections are so important now more than ever, and one way we connect is sharing our stories. If you've ever wondered what your mom was like in high school or whether your grandmother had any adventures before she became your grandma, then StoryWorth is the perfect gift for you. When you think about it, how much do you actually know about your family? Not just their birthday or their favorite color, but those stories that make them who they are.
0: StoryWorth is the perfect way to do just that. StoryWorth emails your family member new story prompts every week, and you can even choose some of your own. Questions like, who did you go to prom with? Or what's one of the riskiest things you've ever done? These are questions we might not think to ask in day-to-day conversation, but it's sure to give you some interesting and even heartwarming stories that you may have never known otherwise. My dad is the best storyteller, and his childhood stories are hilarious. I love with StoryWorth that he's been able to share more about himself that I never knew from the silly to the sweet. And after a year of questions with StoryWorth, they will compile all the answered questions and whatever photo you choose to include and create a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped entirely for free. Connect with family and discover untold
1: stories with StoryWorth. Get started right away without the need for shipping by going to storyworth.com moms. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com
0: slash moms for $10 off. I believe that performance matters, and I've wanted to make the switch to more natural products for a while now, and that includes my deodorant. But deodorant isn't something that can fail, so I need something that can do its job all day to keep me smelling fresh. That's why we want to recommend all our listeners check out Native. Let's face it, changing deodorants can be a little scary and could be a little smelly if you don't get the right one. I was excited to move to something more natural, but not at the cost of smelling like hot garbage. But Native allows me to stay fresh and smell great with over 10 scents, like coconut and vanilla, cucumber and mint, and my favorite, lavender and rose. Also, I checked out the Native newsletter this month, and if you really want to get your fall on, check out the Pumpkin Spice Latte Collection, available now for a limited time. Native never uses ingredients like aluminum,
1: parabens, sulfates, or talc. In fact, aluminum actually makes a plug in your sweat glands to keep you from doing what your body naturally does, sweating. Making the switch to Native, which is aluminum-free, doesn't mean you're having to sacrifice on odor protection. Switching to something new can be intimidating, and Native gets that, which is why they offer 30 days free returns and
0: exchanges, plus all orders in the U.S. come with free shipping. Do what we did and make the switch to Native today by going to nativedeo.com slash moms or use promo code moms at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash moms or use promo code moms at checkout for 20% off your first order. And now back to the episode.
1: Before the break, officers from New York were about to head down to Florida to gather more background information on Benji and Narcy Novak after Benji was found murdered inside the couple's hotel room in July of 2009. When the investigators arrived in Florida, they quickly learned that Narcy and Benji had a dysfunctional relationship. Although they didn't have enough evidence against Narcy, the investigators believed that she was somehow involved in her husband's murder, but they continued digging for over a week. In a stroke of pure luck police received an anonymous letter 10 days after Benji was killed. Whoever wrote it alleged that Benji was murdered by Narcy and her brother Cristobal. On August 13, 2009, investigators traveled to Philadelphia to speak with Cristobal. He let the officers into his apartment for an interview, and while they were there, the investigators noticed a Western Union receipt for $500 that was addressed to somebody named Alejandro Garcia in Miami, Florida. This of course was suspicious. The investigators jotted down Alejandro's name and looked into him. They found that he did have an arrest record and they were able to obtain a previous mugshot so that they would be able to identify him. Next they assigned agents to review all of the hotel footage from the time that Benji was in the hotel in New York. So this is so many there's a lot of moving parts here there They're in Florida, they're in Philadelphia, they're investigating this crime that happened in New York, but these officers are really all over the place having to try and kind of piece this together and figure out how are all these people connected because they clearly are. So sure enough, they spotted Alejandro on the surveillance footage along with another man who they identified as Joel Gonzalez. Keep in mind, all of this has really quickly come about after they got this anonymous letter that they really have now traced back to these two men. But they're both connected to Narsi and her brother Cristobal, which means the police may have been on the right track with their thinking that Narsi had something to do with this crime. But this is another example of how we have said in these cases how crazy it is to think one little piece of evidence or one tip— can make or break an investigation like this, because how long would it have taken them if they didn't get a letter that said, look into this guy, Cristobal, how long would it have taken them to figure all this out? This is spanning over multiple states. And that makes it more difficult to kind of, you know, piece together when you aren't really sure where all the players are at that that point. So I always think it's just crazy. Like, oh, that really may have been a deal breaker in this case that somebody actually gave them that tip. So further investigation showed that Alejandro and Joel checked into a hotel in Queens during the same time that Benji was murdered. What police didn't realize yet, but they were about to find out, was that these two men did play a crucial role in the murder, and the trail led them to believe that this wasn't the only murder they were responsible for. Narcy's relationship with these two men actually began three months earlier when Benji's mom Bernice was found dead. We said in the beginning that
0: Narcy and Bernice had a less than ideal relationship. It's really the tale as old as time for some women to complain about or bicker with their mother-in-law. But in this case, Narcy and Bernice outright hated each other. I'd like to go on record and say my mother-in-law is a lovely, lovely woman. She is. I love her (laughs) mother-in-law. She's the best. I just feel like saying those words, I need to really throw that out there. But one thing Narcy did not hate was money. She knew that if Bernice was dead, her estate would go to Benji, which would make his estate more valuable. And who was the heir to Benji's estate? Narcy, of course. In February of 2009, Narcy contacted her brother, Cristobal and asked him to hire any hitman to kill Bernice. Her brother did know a guy, or rather three guys. They were Alejandro Garcia, Caesar Marina, and Melvin Medrano. Narcy assisted by telling the hitman details about Bernice's car and her home and where they'd have the best chance to attack her. There were actually several unsuccessful attempts to kill Bernice before her tragic death on April 4, 2009. On that day, Cristobal drove Alejandro to Bernice's home in Fort Lauderdale. Cristobal dropped Alejandro off and told him to give Bernice a, quote, good beating. When Bernice arrived home that evening, Alejandro was waiting for her. She parked her car in the garage as usual, and when she got out, Alejandro came up from behind some garbage cans near her driveway, and he really just snuck up behind her. When Bernice saw what was happening, she screamed, and Alejandro struck her in the mouth and head several times with a wrench. Bernice managed to get her way inside the house, where she was profusely bleeding. Looking at pictures of the scene, it's very obvious that this woman did not suffer a basic slip-and-fall accident, as the investigators had initially ruled. There were significant amounts of blood in Bernice's car, as well as inside of her home. Yeah, so if you've got all this blood in your car, how are you going to fall in your car? That's right. None of that makes any sense. So a lot of blood was found in the bathroom and in the kitchen near the sink, almost as if she was trying to stop her bleeding before she collapsed and died. No one was ever interviewed following the suspicious death, and the case was closed and ruled an accident. In other words, Narcy had actually gotten away with soliciting the murder of her own mother-in-law. Unfortunately, that wasn't where her plan
1: ended. Since Narsi was motivated by money, her ultimate plan all along was to have Benji killed, knowing, of course, that she was the beneficiary to his entire estate, which had now grown by millions. In July of 2009, she was ready to complete her plan. She once again contacted her brother about hiring Hitman to kill Benji. This time, Cristobal just hired Alejandro Garcia, and then Alejandro brought his friend Joel Gonzalez into the plot. Cristobal told Alejandro that Narcy wanted Benji to pay for sexually abusing her and that with him dead, Narcy and Cristobal could take control of his business as well as collect on his estate. So Alejandro and Joel agreed to drive from Florida to New York, which by the way is over an 18 hour drive, so that they could murder Benji in the hotel there. While they were traveling, they stopped and bought weapons and other tools to use in the attack. When they arrived, the men got a hotel room about 35 minutes away from the Hilton where Narcy and Benji were staying. In the early morning hours of July 12th, Narcy called the hitmen and told them it was time. The men traveled to the hotel and met Narcy, who let them into the suite to attack Benji. Mm -hmm. Narcy was actually present for the initial attack, which is something that police didn't learn until later. She participated by handing the men a pillow to muffle Benji's screams and she offered them a towel to clean up after they had killed him. Before they left the room, Narsi gave them Benji's diamond studded gold ID bracelet, which I guess you can do something with that, but it just doesn't seem like a very smart thing to take after you have murdered this person. Why would you take their ID bracelet? That doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah. Of all things, it's just literally a calling card to who you just
1: killed. Right. Exactly. You can't pawn it. You can't really do anything with it. So that's... I didn't really understand why she would give them that. After Benji was murdered, Narcy stole around $100,000 in cash proceeds from the convention that they were working. She laundered the money through bank accounts in both Florida and New York and used it to pay Cristobal as well as to pay for her attorneys in probate court regarding Bernice and Benji's deaths.
0: The investigation into all of this lasted for months. While it was still going on, Cristobal developed an issue with his niece, May, which of course is Narcy's daughter. In the late summer of 2009, Cristobal actually asked Alejandro to plant drugs and weapons in May's car and then call the police on her. A short time later, he wanted May to be beat up so badly that she was quote unquote left a cripple. The reason for wanting May hurt was because she was interfering in this inheritance of Benji's estate. Thankfully, no attack was ever made on May. May. On November 18, 2009, the investigators in New York learned that Alejandro Garcia had been arrested in Florida on unrelated theft charges. The detectives took their chance and flew down to Florida to question him about Benji's murder. At first, Alejandro wouldn't talk to the officers, but then he finally started talking, and unfortunately for himself, he accidentally implicated himself because he said that he was scared for his family because the people responsible for Benji's death were very, very dangerous people. With that, the detectives knew that they were on the right track with their investigation. Back in Philadelphia, where Cristobal lived, he had no idea that Alejandro had been arrested at all. In fact, he actually assumed that Alejandro had just fled the country and gone back to his home country of Nicaragua. Even so, Cristobal was worried that Alejandro would tell police what happened, so what was the solution? To hire someone to kill Alejandro so he wasn't able to talk. He asked a man named Yadar Tinoco to travel to Nicaragua, where he believed Alejandro was, to find him and kill him. Yadar said no, but Cristobal still had other friends to ask. He went back to one of the hitmen for Bernice Novak named Melvin Medrano and asked him to kill Alejandro. Although Melvin did agree, he never got around to it because unbeknownst to him, Alejandro was sitting in a Miami jail. At this point,
1: police wanted to track down Joel. When they found him, he confessed to everything and told police that Narcy and Cristobal were involved. Then Alejandro decided to talk too. He told the police that he was hired by Cristobal to murder Ben and he said that Cristobal had asked him to do other terrible things such as what he wanted done to May. When May learned about this request to attack her, she took her two sons and went into hiding. While all of this was going on, a reporter named Julie Brown was working on a story about Benji's death when she came across Bernice's obituary, which said that she died from this accidental fall just three months before Ben was killed. Julie thought this was really strange, and she requested a copy of Bernice's autopsy and learned that she did, in fact, have significant injuries that would be inconsistent with a fall. So Julie tried to convince the police to re-examine this case, but they insisted that it was an accident and they even seemed to be getting irritated with her for kind of meddling into this business. In the meantime, prosecutors were making a deal with Alejandro. While he was telling them the story of what happened in Benji's murder, he also confessed to killing Bernice, which meant that Florida officials also had to investigate Bernice's death as a homicide now. On June 28, 2010, Alejandro took a plea deal. He pleaded guilty to interstate domestic violence, and as part of the deal, he had to testify at Narci and Cristobal's trial. Months later, Alejandro was sentenced to 17 years and six months for his role in the killing, and he was ordered to give up the $25,000 that he was paid for the murders. On July 7, 2010, Narcy and Cristobal were indicted in the murder of Benji, and in April of 2011, they were both indicted for Bernice's murder as well. On January 20th, 2011, Joel pleaded guilty to interstate domestic violence with death resulting, stalking with death resulting, and conspiracy to commit both of these crimes. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. There were also two getaway drivers charged in Benji's murder case. They both pled guilty and agreed to testify against Narcy and Cristobal, and they ended up being sentenced to time served.
0: It's amazing to me how many people they had involved in this. Just, yeah. One person talking, which clearly someone knew something and sent a letter, and the whole thing unravels. You have so many people whose necks are on the line for this. Narcy and Cristobal had a dual trial in White Plains, New York, that began on April 23rd, 2012. According to the prosecution, Narcy hired Cristobal to kill Bernice and Benji and Cristobal then hired two men to help him, who were Alejandro and Joel. They alleged that Nancy knew Benji was having an affair and that if he were to leave her, she would get nothing from his estate due to the prenup that they had. But if Narcy killed Bernice first so that Benji could collect his inheritance, she could then kill Benji and take it all for herself. The defense that Narcy and Cristobal went with was that Narcy's daughter, May, actually framed her mother for murder. This is mother of the year here, blaming all this stuff on her kid. Right. So they might have tried to throw her under the bus because in the event that Narcy did not inherit Benji's estate, it would go to May and her two sons. May was quoted in the Miami Herald as saying, quote, this whole thing is a joke. To me, they are going to say whatever they can to save their own butts, end quote. The defense also brought up that Narcy was downstairs at the hotel when Benji was murdered, as evidenced by seeing her on surveillance in the dining room. At the conclusion of the trial, Narcy and Cristobal were found guilty for the murders of both Bernice and of Benji. Officially, they were convicted of racketeering, racketeering conspiracy, conspiracy to commit interstate domestic violence, committing interstate domestic violence, stalking, and four counts of violent crime in aid of racketeering. Phew. Narcy was also found guilty of interstate transportation of stolen property and two counts of money laundering. Cristobal was found guilty of two counts of tampering with a witness. On December 17, 2012, Narcy and Cristobal were both sentenced to life in prison. All of their appeals have so far been denied. As for where they are now, Narcy
1: is serving her time at FCI Tallahassee, and Cristobal is incarcerated at McCreary USP in Pine Knot, Kentucky. Under Florida's Slayer statute, Narcy was unable to receive any of the money from Benji's estate. The statute says, quote, a surviving person who unlawfully and intentionally kills or participates in procuring the death of the decedent is not entitled to any benefits under the will or under the Florida probate code, and the estate of the decedent passes as if the killer had predeceased the decedent. That is it kind of sounds like a I don't know. That was just a very confusing sentence for me. It is for my brain to handle like, cause I had, you have to think about like, what does it even mean? You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's a great law that they have in place though, that you can't kill somebody and then still collect the money, which basically is how I would have written the law. But I guess their words, you know, in a lawyerly way, makes more sense than me just saying right. that's what I would do. Right.
1: <laughs> right. So the inheritance has actually dwindled down significantly over the years. At least half a dozen family members claimed that they deserved part of Benji's estate. There was five cousins. And then there was also a woman that popped up and claimed to be Ben Senior's illegitimate daughter, which would make her Benji's sister. And this woman said that her mother had a one night stand with Ben Senior back when he owned the Fountain Blue Hotel. Back in 2012, the inheritance was worth about four million dollars. And most of Benji's assets were liquidated. His impressive Batman collection was auctioned off for just $350,000, which I know sounds like a lot of money. But you got to think about these crazy big memorabilia collections. Like at some point, yeah. like you get offers from places like Hard Rock Cafe wants to buy all these pieces or some not them necessarily because it doesn't. <laughs> I was like, wow, that is a very specific one. (laughs) I mean, not specifically, but you know what I'm saying? Like museums and like places like
0: that, that want that type of thing. They want like Batman memorabilia. I don't know why it's hard. I love that is the most specific one I could have ever heard i was like yeah hard rock cafe that makes sense to me i don't, I don't know <laughs> well you know you go in there and they have like memorabilia and like yeah. stuff on the walls but like,
1: somebody had that before hard rock cafe did and they bought it they wanted it in their restaurants right like that's Wait, how those things is it were. ever so sometimes
0: <laughs> fake i feel like sometimes i don't it's know fake. it's like going to tijuana flats and you seeing like the autograph is it pictures, ever real like, are you no, telling
1: me it's, it's all fake i thought it was real
0: <laughs> Here's the thing. I I'm was sure real. you're right. The possibilities <laughs> of me ever being right on anything are like zero to 0.0%. 0. So you're good. Don't worry. Let's I mean, go back to the like, Cafe. You're right. Theory. They're not like, they aren't
1: museums, but I'll be sad if those things aren't real. Like, I don't know. I'm going off on a crazy. No, no. Now.
0: I think you're good. I think you're good. There's a Batman, uh, speaking of Tallahassee from five minutes ago, there's a Batman, the Batmobile car is like a big deal in Tallahassee. Like, that's when people come yeah. to visit Tallahassee. That's the thing you bring them to. If that's fake, we got nothing. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> anyway, so it just that whole entire his Batman collection only went for $350,000, which I just thought was very sad. So one of May's sons, Patrick struggled with health issues, and he actually needed a lot of heart surgeries. And so he was he had already had four, he needed a fifth heart surgery to survive. And even though May was working two jobs, she of course could not afford this expensive surgery. And she also did not have health insurance. So in February of 2014, the court put $50,000 in a trust for Patrick's medical expenses, which I get it. And like, I think that's great that they were able to set aside something for May and for her son, but there was a lot of money in that estate. And it's just crazy to me, a heart surgery. It's almost like a slap in the face when your child has had already for heart surgeries and needs a fifth one, you know, that is so expensive. And I felt like $50,000, like, uh, I mean, I, it's great. And of course, I'm sure she was thankful. But that's just I don't know, it's crazy.
0: Well, yeah, whenever the whole idea with the trust, too, was if she didn't get it, you know, like, she was one of the people that was in his will, like, she should have gotten this money, in my opinion, from what I understand, you know, it was like, down to her, right? If Something happened to Narcy and something did happen to Narcy. She killed two people, so it makes more sense to me for it to go to her. Did they do like a twenty three and me on this person that was claiming to be his sister? Yeah, but that's just crazy to me. That you know, I, I wonder what like the validity was there. That if she gets a piece of this, and to not give more to the kid, but I'm sure they have their reasons for doing things the way they did. But I agree, like. It's no, I'm sure surgery. they do. Yeah,
1: I, I'm sure they do. I was just thinking, I I did Google it to see like what the average heart surgery costs. And it's like sometimes can be $350,000. Oh for the, That's like one heart surgery. So, I mean, thanks for the $50,000. But like this, I mean, I don't know. If it's just I, sitting there. And they, I don't mean to. I feel like I'm coming across like I wouldn't be thankful. But you know, I would, you know, for anything that would help in that situation. But like you would think they would at least give enough for the heart surgery that he needed
0: at yeah. that immediate
1: moment, you know?
0: Yeah. I don't know. There's got to be there has to be something in place for that cuz otherwise it does not make sense that they wouldn't do that. So there has to there's got to be a law, Mandy. I believe yeah, that there's a law. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure 0. there is. I'm sure 0. you're right. point zero one percent sure of that.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's actually a lifetime movie. Who doesn't love a lifetime movie? It's so they're so awful and cheesy and the acting is always terrible. But I they're love so lifetime. They're so good. Movies like they're so good in the worst way yeah you
0: don't watch them for just amazing acting you watch them for somebody turning and the other person grabbing them turning them around and like yeah open yeah. mouth sucking face <laughs> as hard as possible and like then stabbing them in the back at the same time that's what you watch yes them
1: for. yes exactly so there is a lifetime movie about this case it's called beautiful and twisted and it's starring rob Lowe. so i actually i didn't watch it i i wanted to i didn't have time but i did see that it was on i think you can get it on prime it's like though, but I'm totally going to pay $3 and watch it because I'm sure it will be amazing.
0: That sounds literally like the best idea I've
1: ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we are going to turn the page and go on to last thing before we go. So we actually have had a few people ask lately. They want to know more details about how we put the podcast together. And I feel like we have kind of answered this a little bit, but I think we've done it mostly in interviews or when we've been on other podcasts. And I don't know that we've ever actually really talked about it on our own show, but there have been a couple of people who have wanted to know. And so I actually had somebody write me today that said they were listening to Last Thing Before We Go. And then they had this idea. They wanted us to talk about what goes into making one of the podcasts, who does the research, who drafts the scripts, Do we rehearse or just go in blind? How long does it take from start to finish to end of recording to do the podcast? Stuff like that. So I thought we would just talk a little bit about how we put the show together and make it sound like we have a very organized
0: process. Well, she did not say that in the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) I never heard those words. I heard the questions, but not anything else. (laughs) So
1: Melissa, what does your week look like for working on the podcast? Well, I-, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I feel like now I'm interviewing you, well, asking you questions about the things that we do, even though I know the answers. <laughs> yeah,
0: I kind of feel like your stuff goes first, though, and my stuff comes at the back end. It, I guess kind of.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess kind of. So uh, we have everything split right down the middle, pretty much. And we always have kind of taken uh, different. We each have different jobs and we kind of just settled into that really early on. And it's worked so far. So. What's that thing they say, like, you
0: don't oil. Oh, <laughs> keep going. Can't wait to see where this is going. You don't oil what, Mandy?
1: <laughs> I know what you're saying, know. but I don't
0: even know the phrase.
1: I don't know. I think I had the phrase, like, mixed up. I was going to say you don't oil a wheel that's not squeaky. But wait, I think I feel- it's the squeaky
0: wheel gets the grease. Are we thinking of the same <laughs> Is this your way of saying that we need to rearrange our workflow and this is how you're telling me?
1: (laughs) No, that was what I was trying to say, but then I was trying to say it in a backwards way, but then it didn't make any sense. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I am following you. If it's not
1: broke, don't fix it, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that's just how we've done it. Now things have been a little wild in 2020 and we did decide that we needed some help doing some parts of the show. So we actually are working with the infamous Haley Gray. I'm saying she's infamous because she really is amazing. And she works on a lot of podcasts that you probably would know. Uh, She does research and it's great. And I'm so thankful that we have her to work with. She does such a great job. So she researches some of the cases for us and then sends us the research and then I read it over. And so from there, I take that research and I write it out in story form. And so that's how the episodes kind of get written. And then I send them to Melissa and she looks them over. And then we make little comments to each other. I do it in Google Docs, so it's nothing fancy. And uh, we just make little comments to each other and kind of, you know, things that we find interesting or will highlight parts of it. And so we have this running Google Doc that we both share. And that's pretty much it. And so then we just pick a day to record. It's usually Thursday nights. And we just... Do that. That's how we do it. It's really not I I
0: feel like it's not that complicated. It doesn't it sounds like it should be more complicated. I think we've gotten into a flow. So you know your job and I always know it's great because I can depend on you and I know like, okay, Mandy's got the script part covered. And then I work on the other side of it, which is like writing the ads. So if you're fast forwarding it, just know you're fast forwarding right through my hard work. So we do the ads, I write all the ads and then I do all the editing and posting stuff on the back end and emails and all that fun stuff. So Mandy gets like the good... Not you get that, but like you're good at that. <laughs> you're good right. at writing. It makes a lot of sense. Like the stories flow. If you've ever, I think I've written two or three episodes and they, I always call them telenovelas because they are very dramatic <laughs> and I I go lifetime movie. That's, that's what I know and that's what I do. And so Mandy is an awesome writer and so she takes what Haley sends or whenever she does the research herself and writes out the script and it's so easy. She knows how we speak and so it's easy to read it. I am glad I'm the editor because I screw up all the time when I'm talking. And so then whenever I'm editing, I'm just like mad at myself the whole time. I'd never be mad at you for your edits, but like mine are so many, I would hate for you to be doing it and be like, (laughs) I hate her. She cannot speak at all. (laughs) So it works out. So there's like all the back stuff. So that's kind of where I'm at. And then Mandy's at the front end with like the writing and the doing a good job with all of that fun stuff (laughs) that I can't do like my brain doesn't work that way did you just hear me say all of those sentences I can't even put sentences together (laughs) no yeah no
1: but I think it balances well because like you said I I don't mind doing the writing side of things and kind of you know and then of course I will watch like if there's documentary shows or Haley sends us everything that she can even possibly find so we have a lot of resources. And and she has a lot of notes that she's taken for us that she sends. So it makes it very easy to put the episodes together with her help. So like I said, again, I'm so thankful to have Haley. We love her so much. As far as how long it takes, I say, so we are recording every week, like I said, on pretty much on Thursdays. And then that episode that we record comes out on Tuesday. So we don't have a very big window of turnaround time. And so every week we're just constantly, it just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. So that's, uh, we don't have, uh, I know some podcasts have multiple episodes that they've already recorded and they're just releasing them when they're supposed to. And it sounds, (laughs) it sounds so lovely, but no, we are really, this content that you're hearing is I mean, as fresh as it could possibly be. Yes. Like (laughs) Like, by the time you hear it, we only just recorded it probably two or three days ago. So it's, it's always very, um, it's always very current,
0: I guess. So that's, that's one positive of not being, of not ever being ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we stopped saying that we were going to get ahead. I don't know, two years ago, because we always had this idea, like, we'll just, you know, get 2 we'll have them recorded, blah, blah, blah. And we literally could never do it. We've never, knock on wood, we've never missed an episode release date. Like we've always done really well. We've had technical things go wrong. We've been sick. We've done all that and it's always worked. But I think that's in part to like having a good partnership where you know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing and we can depend on each other. And that's a huge thing to be able to know. Like I never have to think like, I wonder if Mandy's, I wonder if she's writing this episode this week. (laughs) Like we just know. And so I know that some people pass it back and forth, but I'm a creature of habit for me especially. I know you're capable of doing lots of different tasks, but like I like I don't know. I think it works out well. I think you do a great job with what you're doing. I think I do my job, and so I think it works you, out. You do an awesome job at what you're doing. <laughs> I know. And we've tried a couple of times to
1: like switch roles or to like take some off of each other's plates so I'll try and do some of the things Melissa does and it just like never really works out I don't know why I guess because we're just so used to doing
0: things the way that we do them and have always done them yeah if you want me to do
1: more you just let me no, know yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean you said it live so no but I love even like I've looked at like uh Patreon spreadsheets and stuff and I look through them and you know I'm like working in them and realize they look like that Charlie Kelly gif where he's like pointing at all different things and strings are going and I'm like anything ever happens, Mandy will be like, what are you, like this, all of this is a terrible (laughs) idea. What are you doing in here? So I don't even want you to see it because it's just such a freaking mess, but it's my mess and I know how to do it. So that's a a little look inside the madness, and I bet people thought it was more exciting than that. It's really not that. Yeah,
1: I know. Well, that's why I've I've seen a few people ask, and so I was like, well, maybe we've never talked about it, but it really isn't that exciting. I mean, we just uh, we record the show from our own houses. I'm sitting on my bed right now with my laptop in front of me, and I have a little stand with my microphone and. That's how I record. It's just nothing glamorous. I don't have a special recording room. I barely have my own space.
0: So I'm just <laughs> I'm in a room, a little like hall area with no AC. You can't run anything while you're recording. So it's just always hot. So I like start with layers yep. <laughs> down to a t-shirt. And if you know me, I love that sweatshirt and it's very hard to give it up, but it's so flipping hot. So I'll be glad when the yeah. weather changes too. But yeah, that was, I feel like that was a good look behind what we're doing not exciting yeah not very fun but if you <laughs> wanted to do it yourself like it's possible you can totally do it it's yeah we work really hard I think I mean I know we do but I don't like to talk for other people I know you work very hard I think I work pretty hard <laughs> and it just works it, it's worked for yeah it I mean depending on reviews you read it's getting hot in here I really should shut up it's yeah I'm <laughs> losing it so yeah there you go there you go. So that
1: is how it's done here, at least here at Moms and Murder.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling done. you other people have much better plans going on, but you know. <laughs> yeah. You should you should ask a real podcaster. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there you go. All
1: right, guys. So we'll be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode.